Well, I hope that you and your family are doing well. Uh, we're in between right now, Memorial Day and Labor Day. And what that means is for many of us, functionally, that means it's summer. That means you're beginning to have your vacations. And uh, if, if some of your sports teams are starting back up, they are. And I know for me and my family, we went to the pool last night for the first time. And, and our pool's open at, at a limited capacity. But we're in a season where things are reopening. And let me just say this. Uh, as you type to or turn to uh, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start at the very end of Galatians chapter 5. Let me just tell you this, that we are continuing to pray, to plan, and to prepare for the reopening of our church. And let me just clarify one more time. Uh, it's not that really our church has closed. Our church is open. Our buildings are closed. What we're planning on doing is we are talking as we're heading out of phase two and into phase three. Uh, you're going to be hearing from me through a video uh, in the next few weeks with more details and dates of how and when we're thinking about reopening. We're very, very excited to tell you more about that. And let me just tell you this as well. As, as we are prayerfully uh, having unity as we move forward, as, as you know, there are different perspectives and ideas on, on reopening the church. Let me just tell you this. We are, and this is a promise, we are making decisions out of conviction, not out of convenience. Uh, we're not making decisions out of fear. I'm certainly not doing it out of peer pressure. Uh, I'm not doing it out of any type of guilt. We are doing it out of conviction. What we see in the scripture, how we're trying to live that out, how we're trying to love our church and love our city and lead and listen well in this season. So with that said, turn with me to the book of Galatians. We're gonna pick up in chapter five, verse 26. And as we do, let me just remind you this, that all of God's word is inspired, but the chapter uh, divisions are not inspired, okay? And those are added much, much later. And, and what you find is, if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a brand new section start. And, and what Paul's going to do, and he does this a lot in, well, in, in every book he writes, but particularly in the book of Galatians, he moves from indicatives to imperatives. And you go, well, I, I, you know, I missed sixth grade English. Okay, well, let me just explain it for a second. Um, indicatives, it, it, that is who you are. Imperatives is commands, what you should do. And the Bible always starts with who before do. It's like, it's like my friend. I've got a friend, Clint Dars. He's preached here before. He told me that growing up, every time he would go out when he was in high school and he'd go out with his friends, he told me his dad would always say to him right before he left, he said, what's your last name? And my friend Clint, he would always say, my last name's Darst. And he said, okay, you are a Darst. Would you please go out and act like that this evening? And the whole idea is I want to remind you of who you are. And then out of that, I want you to live a certain way. So Paul has for four and a half chapters, five chapters, told us who we are. Now in the end of chapter five and chapter six, there are enormous amount of commands that of what we should do, that our identity informs our activity, that we need to know what Christ has done before we need to know what we need to do. So with all that said, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter five, looking at verse 26. And, and this, let me just read it to you. It says this, let us not become kinsmen seated. And then he gives two different ways, provoking one another, envying one another. So this is the, you could, if you write in your Bible, you might want to write social media verse. Okay. Uh, this is what happens. He says, uh, there are two dangers in life to think you're better than people and to think you're worse than people. Okay. He says, well, one is to provoke people. And that's, I think I'm better than you. I have a superior complex. I look down on you. The other is to say, uh, no, actually, I feel inferior to you. I'm following your social media account, and I'm wondering how your kids got into that school, how you went on that vacation, how you made that much money, uh, how you look like you're that happy. And so I feel inferior to you all the time, and I'm jealous and envious of you. And what the Bible says is that we should not think we're better or worse than people, that we should instead be defined by what Christ has done for us, that what the gospel does is it gives us a new self-image. It gives us a new way to view ourselves and to view others. And so Paul sets that up in verse 26, and then here's what he's going to do. In, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to talk about how to deal with sin 
and suffering in community. That's the big idea. How do you deal with sin and suffering in Christian community? And then that's important for you to know because whether it's your family, that's going to be a Christian community, uh, whether it's our, our church at large, whether it's a community group, uh, you're going to need to deal with these two twins the rest of their life, the rest of your life, sin and suffering. So here's what Paul says. Uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, um, brothers, you, we could say brothers and sisters, he's writing to the church, the church is a family, and that's how he writes to them. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transition, and again, if you underline, you might want to underline the word any. It shows up twice, right? He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any trans transgression. Now, here's the first big idea. You can get caught in sin. And when I say you, I mean, I mean you. I mean, the person watching this right now, like you, not the person next to you, not, not your spouse, not your kids, not your neighbor, not the person that you don't like or whatever. You can get caught in any sin. In fact, this is very interesting. Um, the nature of sin in the Bible, if you, if you do like a study of sin, it's, it, it would be a very long study because the Bible talks a lot about sin. But if you did it, one of the things you'll see very early on is that sin is personified. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the oldest stories we have in the Bible, Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter four, good discussion for your community group. Here's what you could do. If you look in Genesis chapter four, God's warning to Cain is he says, hey, sin is crouching at your door. What is that saying? It's personified. He says it, 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 it has almost attributes. So he says it's crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. And now he says sin is crouching. Now, why does something crouch? Something crouches either to look smaller than it is. That's what sin wants to do in your life. Or not just to look smaller so that it can jump on you. And so there's this warning. There's a humility that we all need to have that, listen, you, me, Anybody, we can get caught in any sin, right? All types of different types of people can get caught in sin. Pastors, church leaders can get caught in sin. We, and we, we tend to be surprised when it happens when, when it eventually comes out, you know, that somebody was caught in some sin for weeks or months or years or decades sometimes. Uh, college students can get caught in sin, right? Uh, by the way, what happens at every age and stage in your life, at every fork in the road, there's a very old saying that says, at every fork in the road, the devil will meet you. Because it's like, you know, how many people, you know, they did well in high school, but they got to college and they gave in and got caught up in sin. How many people did well in college and then they went and they moved to some big city and they took some big job and now they're not doing as well. So that you, you can get caught, any type of person, you know, I, I give you a story. Uh, there was um, a homeschool mom that I know of, not in this city, not even, not in this church. Um, and uh, her story is, you know, she's staying home, she's trying to homeschool the kids. She got so stressed that she started day drinking. Just you know, a little bit of wine here, a little bit of wine there. And she got to the point where she would lock herself in the bathroom and drink a bottle of wine in the middle of the day because she could not handle her life. It's not necessarily the type of person that you would think would get caught in maybe that type of sin. But what it says here is that any person can get caught in any sin. Now what you see what it says next. It says, if any of you is caught in any transgression. Now there are different types of sins, right? And different sins are tempting to different people. Uh, there are people who get caught in sexual sin. That's a very common one. I know I mention it a lot. And one of the reasons I mention it a lot is because I'm a pastor and I've been doing ministry for 15 years. And I know that this tends to be the number one way people get caught in a sin. Early, early on in the life of our church, very early on, I had a young lady email me. She said, thank you for talking so much about pornography. Um, this has been a struggle and an addiction in my life for so long, and I'm so ashamed because of it's pornography, but secondly, because I'm a woman, I shouldn't struggle with this, and I do. And she, there was a woman who she was caught in a sin. I, I've told this story before, but very briefly, but when I was doing ministry at Duke, uh, one of the students, not a Christian, he, he, um, 
He was coming to one of my fraternity Bible studies. I called him spiritual leader studies, spiritual leadership studies. But anyway, so I, but uh, we're sitting down at lunch one day, and I said, "Why did you come to the study?" And he said, "The reason I came to the study is because I'm addicted to pornography and I need help." And I didn't know where else to look. And I talked to my dad, and he just said it's normal. And and I've got a lot of struggles, and I'm, I'm hoping that maybe the Bible has some answers. And that's why. And here here was a guy who got caught in sexual sin. Sometimes you get caught in social sin, right? which is only amplified by the internet and blogging and tweeting and social media and Facebook and Instagram. But it's very, very easy to get caught up in, I, I cannot believe that my whole life is about competing and comparing and conquering. Some people realize, oh my goodness, I, I struggle with the sin of gossip. And, and gossip is, here's what gossip is, I like to confess other people's sins, right? We're called to confess our sins, that's good. That's, that's good, godly, and right, that's confession. Gossip is, I confess other people's sins. Sometimes people fall into, to, they feel like they're trapped. This is a very common story. People get trapped in substance abuse. Like here's what I, I, I know a guy. Again, not in our church, not in our city. But I, I know a guy who, um, his son died tragically at a young age. And he became an alcoholic. He didn't even struggle with alcohol beforehand. But he turned to that in a very dark time in his life. And by the way, that's sometimes how just how people get trapped in sin is uh, it was maybe something they weren't struggling with or they had under control until there was a trial or a tragedy in their life where they found that that sin gave them comfort or gave them escape. And all of a sudden, sometimes it's several years later, they realize I've been trapped in it. Uh, another very, very common sin people get trapped in is a love of money. And it's very, very subtle, right? People go, I don't want to be rich. I just want to have enough money to buy whatever I need whenever I want. It's like, well, that's actually, that's the definition of rich, you know? Um, but people, then they get caught in that. And I've seen this because a lot of times it, it usually takes till someone's in their 40s or 50s or 60s and they look back on their life and what they tend to realize is they were trapped in a love of money and materialism because it was the only dimension across or the only category in which they thought about their life. And so what he's saying is anybody can get caught in any type of sin but here's what I love. He's saying that what the church's role, and we're going to see this as we, as we continue on in the verse, the church's role, Christian's role, is not to avoid or ignore or excuse when we see people in sin, which is our temptation, right? I, just, I don't want to look at it because I don't want to even know. I don't even want to know what that person's struggling with because if I knew, I might have to do something about it. I might have to get involved. I might have to challenge them. I might have to call them out. I might have to be the person to text them and hold them accountable. And, and well, I don't want to do that. Or we just want to give them excuses, right? Well, they're, you know, in fact, the, the guy who became an alcoholic. I remember talking to several of his friends, and they said, well, we, we really can't talk to him about it. I mean, his son died. You know, I mean, we, we can't, I mean, who blames him? We, we, we don't want to, we just want to leave him alone in this season. And so there, there's different ways we can handle it, but the Bible calls us to move toward people and to restore them, which leads to the second big point I want you to see. You need to be gentle and careful when others are caught in sin. You need to be gentle and careful. Those are two important characteristics. You need to be gentle and careful when others are caught in sin. Look again at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone, could be you, could be me, is caught in any transgression, lots of different temptations in life, different temptations as you get older, he says, you who are spiritual, and that's a reference to Christians, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you see gentleness and you see carefulness so that you don't be tempted. Now, let me tell you this. The goal, when someone's trapped in sin, the goal of meeting with them is restoration. That's the goal. The goal is not um, to feel good about yourself because you don't struggle with it. 
The goal is not to tell them I told you so. The goal is not to learn this information, tuck it away in your brain, and then use it against them later if they have something against you. Okay, All of those are not the right biblical options. Now, what we're told here is that this is restoration. Now, here's what restore means. Restore means to, it's actually a medical term um, back then, and it means to put a bone straight and back in place. Now, Unfortunately, I've had this experience once when uh, I broke, I, I know I'm not much of an athlete, and that'll be surprising to you guys, but I'm not much of an athlete. Um, but I was playing basketball, this is probably you know, 12 years ago, playing basketball, and uh, a guy ends up hitting me you know, in, with his elbow in my nose while we're playing. My nose gets crooked, and, uh, and, I, and they say to me, don't, oh, don't worry, this was in Charlotte. They said, don't worry, we know a doctor. And anyway, they took me to this guy's house he was a retired doctor. He, I mean, he had to be at least in his 70s. And, I, and he comes over to me, he looks at it, and he just breaks it back right into place. And it was very, very painful, okay? Uh, so I know what it's like to have something out of place put back into place. The whole idea here, and it's a powerful illustration that has multiple layers in the New Testament. What, what it's saying here is this, that when you need to be restored, it means that you need to be brought back into the body, and you need to be put you need to be put back in the right place so that you can be a member of this body, used rightly and flourishing. And so it's really, really a powerful idea. So th this is the idea of restoration. Now, how does this work? There's a couple principles of restoration. One principle is that um, <clears throat> when you restore a person, when they're caught in some sin, we talk about this and I want to explain why. You want to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. And people go, why? Are you trying to keep secrets? Is that why you want to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible? No. Here's why, and this is so practical. Because... If the only people who should know about a person's sin are the people who can walk them through that sin and see them restored. I cannot emphasize enough how important that is. You don't need to know everybody's sin and everybody doesn't need to know your sin. You, you wanna, if, if you find out, I don't know, so-and-so, your friend's spouse is caught in some sin, if you, if you find out about it, hopefully you're gonna be able to see that spouse restored so that you don't just associate thinking about them with a certain sinful pattern, but about the grace of God in their life and how God has changed and transformed them. But there's a warning here too. So he says here, I want you to restore people. And, and by the way, we, we will be we, have be, we have been a church that's all about restoring people. We wanna see families restored. We wanna see marriages restored. We wanna see relationship with God restored. I mean, that's what we're about here. But there's some warnings here. So he says, I want you to be careful, right? He says, so that you two don't fall. Because here's the thing about sin. Sin is, sin is attractive to the fallen flesh. And sin is, can be contagious. And sin can spread easily. And so he says, I want you to be careful. Like He says, first of all, you who are spiritual should restore. In other words, uh, to restore somebody else, to help somebody else who's caught in sin, it, it assumes some spiritual maturity on your part. Like, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever successfully repented of any sin in your life? Have you ever been able to repent of something and go, well, I actually did. There, I have a past, and it is my past because I've said no to it. And I understand the grace of God. I understand the forgiving grace of God. I understand the transforming grace of God. I know how to be in community. I know how to have accountability. I know how to confess when I fail. I know how to take extreme measures and cut things out of my life. Because here's the truth. Um, Though all sins are different and, and, and there are different temptations, there are certain principles and practices that are the same across dealing with sin. And so he says, you who are spiritual restore. But then he gives some warnings. He says, because I don't want you to fall into temptation. Now let me just give you a couple practical warnings. Um, and, and this comes out of you know, almost 20 years now of being a Christian and watching this happen and having a front row seat at the best and worst things in people's lives. Um, the way that you protect yourself as you restore other people is number one, we would 
in the vast majority of, of cases, and as a general rule, we would encourage men to minister to men on a personal restoration dealing with sin level and women to minister to women. This is why we have DNA groups with three to five men and we have DNA groups with three to five women. And, and the whole idea here is that what we want to do is we want to avoid the temptation that we often see happen when a man meets with a woman or, or vice versa and, uh, and they're sharing their struggles. Because you need to be careful about spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy and where that goes. Because I, I have seen so many stories over the years of there's a pastor or there's a leader and he's counseling some woman and her marriage has been hard and she confides in him and, and he talks about how hard his marriage is and it goes downhill from there. And so the first thing is you need to be very careful. This is why we encourage when dealing with sin and intense suffering, men to deal directly with the men, women to deal directly with the women in one-on-one -on -one settings, okay? Um, the second thing is don't ask for a bunch of details. Be very, very careful because some people want to sin streak, okay? They want to tell you every detail about every sin that they did and you don't need to know and it's not helpful. It's not helpful for someone to say, yeah, I struggle with pornography and the best website to go to is www. It's like, no. Oh man, I've been cheating on my taxes but it's so easy and no one ever caught me because here's what I do. No, I don't want to know. I don't want to actually know. I, I, I don't need to know how you have sinned sophisticatedly so that it then becomes a temptation for me as well. And the third temptation, he says, and he actually says this later, that um, you'll see this in a few verses, but he talks about the temptation to become prideful when dealing with other people's sins. To think that somehow I could never give in to that. And the, and the truth is, we can. The truth is that sin is very, very tempting. And that if we don't understand ourselves as big sinners, saved by even a bigger grace of God, we're going to become prideful or self-righteous in dealing with other people's sins. So that's the second thing he says. Here's the third big idea. The third big idea is you need to know the difference between a burden and a load. You need to know the difference between a burden and a load. See, what he does is he transitions here from talking about sin, hey, if you're caught in sin, here's how to help, to move to suffering, okay? And I want you to see this. Uh, we're gonna cover a lot of verses here. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And by the way, what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is summed up in this. Love others as Christ has loved you. That Christ, him coming into the world, living a perfect life, willing to suffer, die, and rise from the dead, it transforms and changes the way that we understand everything. And the primary command in life is to love other people how Christ has loved you. And so here's what it says. It says, bear each other's burdens. Now there's two assumptions there. Here's the first assumption, that you have burdens, Okay. And, or that at least across time and across your life, you will have different burdens. Here's the second assumption, that you are actually in community. You cannot bear burdens from a distance. It assumes that we are with each other in conversation, in community. We know the pain and pressure points in each other's lives. And we are to a place in a position that when we have a burden, we share it with other people. Okay, but here's what he says, and this is the tension here, and the Bible is full of tensions in the best sense of the word, okay, and always pay attention to the tension, okay? Here's what he says, verse three, for if anyone, there's a third, third any, for if anyone thinks he is something, so that's being prideful, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The Bible talks a lot about self-deception. Book of Galatians talks a lot about self-deception. Verse four, but let each one test his own work. Now your work is different than your burden, Okay, because here's what he says. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to, underline this if you underline, to bear his own load. So here's the tension, and I want to just 
pause and talk about this because I've been excited since we got into the book of Galatians. I've been eager to get to chapter six to talk about this concept. And it's the concept of the difference between a burden and a load, okay? Now, what is a load? Now, let me give you one illustration that will kind of carry through the whole burden load discussion. Here's what it is. Think of your load as the backpack that God has given you to carry, the responsibilities, the God-given responsibilities that you have as somebody who's made in the image of God, okay? It's a backpack with lots, lots of bricks that you have to carry. And one brick's called, you know, pay your bills. And another brick's called, you know, stay healthy and take care of yourself. And another brick's called, you know, uh, work on your marriage and, and, and have a relationship with God and repent of sin. And, and all of those things that God calls every person to do, it's called your load, and let me just speak directly to the Gen Xers and the Millennials, okay? This could be a temptation for any of us, but particularly one of the reasons, and there's hundreds of reasons, but one of the reasons I believe so many Millennials and so many Gen Xers are nihilistic and are depressed and are anxious and are bored and are purposeless is they have not picked up their load. They have not said, here's the bricks in my backpack for this season, and I'm walking uphill toward the city of God with this backpack on my back. That's the whole idea. So now, you need to understand this, though. There's a difference between a load and a load you have to carry. A load you should never ask anybody else to carry, okay? What happens in a lot of times is people treat their loads like their burdens. Well, let me, let me pause on that. Let me tell you what a burden is. A burden, let's take the backpack analogy, a burden is when somebody throws you a brick or you find a brick that you need to carry, but it doesn't fit in your backpack. It's too massive. You know, maybe something happens in your life and you end up having a child with multiple severe disabilities. And that is a unique load for you to carry that it actually, in your life, it becomes a burden. Or think about it this way. It's either a brick that is so big that it can't fit in your backpack and it's hard to carry by yourself or something happens to you where you no longer can carry your backpack. Maybe there's no more bricks in it. Maybe you just can't carry it. Let me give you an illustration. Think about this. Think about a military team. Uh, they're on some mission. They've all got their military backpacks. They're heading uphill to the mission. One guy falls down. He breaks both of his legs. Nobody looks at him and goes, pick your load up, man. Everybody says, all right, let's go. Take everything out of his bag. Each of us, if there's 10 guys, we each take one of the 10 things in his bag. Two or three of us pick them up. We're going uphill. It's like, that's the idea of a burden. It's like something has happened. Either someone's given me a brick or by providence, I have a brick that I can't carry by myself. Maybe me, even me and my husband or me and my wife, we can't carry this by ourselves. It's too big of a brick. Or something has happened to me that has turned this load into a burden. Let me give you a couple practical things that happen. Often death and or divorce can turn a load into a burden. All of a sudden you find yourself, you're a single mom or you're a single dad, and you're trying to, to, to carry both the weight of raising children and working full time. And it is a, I don't know what else to call it, but a burden. Sometimes it's like, you know, you, you can't look at someone you know, I don't know, I'm picking an arbitrary age. You can't look at some 12-year-old, you know, and say, you need to do everything that every other 12-year-old does when he says, well, you know what, man, my dad died this year. And so it's like, well, okay, now, now what was a normal load is now a burden in that person's life. Sometimes it's illness and injury. Sometimes it's like, well, everything was going well, and you were paying your bills, and you were making money, and you were loving your family, and you were having your ministry, and then you got stage three cancer of some sort. And, the med and you don't just have normal medical bills like everybody gets occasionally. You have medical medical bills. 
Sometimes it's, there's, there's, there is a crisis or there is just a calamity. And sometimes that ends up affecting a whole city, you know, or a whole area. You know, there's a natural disaster. There's something that happens that, you know, the normal realities of life are no longer functioning and you need other people to help carry burdens. So let me just say this. As a church, we, this is the tension we live in. We need to each carry our own load. We have to. And we need to be willing to bear each other's burdens. Now, there, there's so many extremes, and I don't have time to talk about all of them, but let me just give you a couple of things that people don't do. There's some of you, you're not carrying your load. Pick it up. I don't know how else to say it. Pick up your load. Quit asking other people to carry things that you need to carry. I heard one pastor, he said, a guy called him one time, a young, young millennial guy called him and said, um, hey, I'm struggling to get up for work. Would you call me every morning and wake me up to go to work? I've never heard of something so ridiculous in my life. And he said, man, sorry, that's not a burden. That's a load. Waking yourself up to get to work on time is a load that you have to carry yourself, okay? So the first thing is some of you, you need to pick up your load and you need to carry it, okay? Now there's a whole nother group of you that need to be honest about the burdens that you have in your life. And you just need to say, listen, you know, because some of you, you don't want to bother anybody. You don't want everyone to really know how hard your life is. You, you smile and you act like it's okay, but you've got some serious burdens. You don't need to let everybody know, but you need to let a few people know. Um, by the way, when you carry a burden, this is for the other side of it, when you're carrying the burden, you don't carry all of it. A burden is like when someone asks you to pick up the other end of the couch. You go, okay, I can't carry this couch by myself, just like you can't carry it by yourself. So what I'll do is I'll take my end, and you take your end, and let's walk. And we're going to get this into the truck, and, the, and we're going to together carry this. Um, here's another thing that people do. Sometimes there are burdens that need to be, uh, to be um, carried together as a married couple, but one of the spouses doesn't want to carry it. So what ends up happening is in a lot of cases, a lot of times the wife's friends have to carry all the burdens because the husband wants to work on his fourth hobby. And it's like, hey, can you come help me watch the kids again? My husband's working on his fourth hobby. And, and he won't help me carry this load or bear this burden. So, and here's, here's what also happens. This is so sophisticated because of how detailed it gets. Here's what happens if you only carry everybody else's burdens and everybody else's load, then you can't carry your own load. And then what ends up happening is you end up being a burden to other people. It's like, well, here's all my money and here's all my time and here's all my energy. Meanwhile, I can't pay my bills and my family's falling apart and now other people need to pick up the slack in my life. This is why one of the other principles and burdens and all this is that, and I say this in love and warmth and all that, you don't get to tell us if it's a burden or not. No individual, I don't get to say if it's a burden or not ultimately. I think ultimately you say, here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm struggling with. And the Christian community around you lovingly, if you trust them and they've got God's word, they say to you either, that is, a, that is a burden and I want to pick it up with you. Or that's a load. And part of the problem is you've never had responsibility in your life. Right? It's, like, it's like in Dumb and Dumber where they come back after looking for jobs and they go, yeah, we can't find a job unless you want to work 40 hours a week. It's like, well, yeah, that's just what a job is. We need to have right expectations for the load that each of us needs to carry. Which leads to the final point, which is found in verse six, you need to see that all of life is connected. You need to see that all of life is connected. Look at verse six. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this is gonna be, as we, as we kind of close and look at these last verses, it's the reciprocal nature of life and ministry. And what he's saying here is in the, the immediate context is Paul is talking about the ministry of the church and that the people who are ministered to should respond to the ministry and mission of the church in generosity. 
I love it. It's share all things. It's not just give money. It's give time. It's give talent. It's give resources. Here's what it's against. A consumeristic mentality in the church, which is what most Americans have. Most Americans view church as a place I go to consume, because that's what I do everywhere else, to consume religious goods and services. That's what the whole point is. And so it's the place I go to sing songs. It's the place I go to make business deals. It's the place I go uh, to hear inspiring messages. It's the place I go to get a break for my kids for an hour. And let me just say, that is not the biblical view of the church. The biblical view of the church is this reciprocal nature that I receive ministry and I want to respond to it in generosity. And, And let me just say, thank God, the majority of our church, since we've begun, has had that mindset. Like even at the very, very beginning, when we were starting our launch team, we had 100 people. That, that, this was back in the summer of 2016. We had 100 people who said, we're gonna be all in with our time, with our talent, and with our treasure. And we are going to respond to the ministry and mission of the church and help it go further faster. And, let me, and, and, I've seen, and I can tell you many, many stories, but just, just to tell you one story, I can remember early on in the life of our church, I can actually remember what I was doing. I was pumping gas at the gas station. I get this phone call. This is right during our deep and wide initiative, our first deep and wide initiative we ever had. Some of you were, were here for that. Uh, we were raising money to, to get into the building that we're currently into. And, uh, and I, I get this phone call. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up. And it's a father of a Wake Forest student. And he had gotten my number somehow. And he called me and he said, hey, you know, we met one time real briefly. Um, I just want to tell you that my son and his friends are flourishing in the church. And I love what this church, how it's serving my kids and how it's a place where he can hear the word and be a connected community. And so what I'd like to do is I want to give $10,000 to the Deep and Wide Initiative because I want to continue to see this happen in the city of Winston-Salem. And I just thought, wow, that's the heart. That's the heart of God, that I respond to ministry and mission with generosity. Because by the way, you know what generosity is? It's an invitation to let God be a part of your finances. And every one of you, at some point in your life, you're going to want God to be a part of your finances. You're like, I'm upside down. I've spent more than I, than I make. Uh, I've got big bills. I need God to be involved in my finances. Let me tell you, invite God in often and early. And the way you do that is through generosity. So he, he talks about the reciprocal nature, but then he talks about, as he goes on, he talks about sowing and reaping. Look at this. Do not be deceived. It's easy to be deceived. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, God, um, he gets the final word. There's nothing that God says will happen that will not happen. God is not mocked for whatever. It's a universal principle. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So this is, a, this is one of the most central principles in all of scripture, the principle of sowing and reaping. That's why I said the final point is that all of life is connected. Tim Keller says it's one of the principal ideas in all of scripture is sowing and reaping. It is mentioned at least 66 times explicitly in the Bible that, that, that which you sow, you will reap. It is a spiritual law. There are physical laws and there are spiritual laws. I want you to understand this. Physical laws are things like gravity, okay? It's, it's a reality, and there are many, many physical laws, and the whole idea that there are physical laws is I'm under them, I can't break them, I can be broken by them if I try to go against them, um, but they, they are set and fixed. It's the whole reason we can do science and medicine is because there are fixed physical laws. I want you to understand this. There are also fixed spiritual laws, And one of the most fundamental and foundational spiritual laws is that which you sow, you will also reap. And I want you to see this because he goes on, verse eight. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap 
eternal life. So I want to give you a couple principles of sowing and reaping, and, and these are super helpful. You know, I'd write these down, I'd share these, I'd share these with your kids, I'd memorize these, they're so important. You will reap what you sow, right? It's, a very, very, it's like, if you're sowing good things, I promise you will reap good things. If you are sowing evil things, you will reap evil things. The second principle of sowing and reaping, you will reap where you sow. You will reap where you sow. Where are you sowing? Some of you are only sowing financially. You're only sowing in your career. You're only sowing in some hobbies. You're giving all of, you're only sowing into understanding better sports and entertainment, which all you're gonna reap is a bunch of useless information and facts. What would it look like instead to say, here's where I'm gonna sow. I'm going to sow into my relationship with God. I'm gonna learn how to read my Bible. I'm gonna learn how to pray. I'm gonna learn how to share my faith. I'm gonna learn how to repent of sin. I'm gonna learn how to be in community. Uh, if there's a couple other areas, I'm going to, if there's only four or five areas I'm going to sow, and I'm going to sow in my relationship with my spouse. It's going to get my first time and, and you know, my, my first desires, and uh, I'm going to sow into my kids. Wherever you sow, that would you also reap. But you, here's another principle. You sow, or you reap later than you sow. And you know that. I mean, it'd be great, you know, if, if we could sow a good thing and reap a good thing the, the, the next day. But what happens in most people's lives is they get discouraged, because they say something like, it's like I read my Bible. You know, I read my Bible and nothing happens. It's like, well, it doesn't always happen the first time you read your Bible. You know, I gave and I didn't immediately see a blessing. What well, doesn't happen maybe the first time and the only time you've ever given? That you, you sow, you reap later than you sow. And then here's the, here's the scary but encouraging principle, right? All these principles are kind of connected. You reap greater than you sow. You reap later and you reap greater than you sow. And so that's encouraging. It means that the power of incremental change in your life across time is incredible. There's a book written not by Christians. It's called Atomic Habits. The whole idea of that book is what would it look like for you to get 1% better every day and what that looks like across time? The, the, the whole idea is you have no idea what it would be like if you would just grow a little bit every day, repent a little bit every day, change a little bit every day. But then also, and, and I've seen this and you've seen this, but what happens is often you will reap uh, um, much greater than you sowed in sinful areas of your life. I mean, how many people is like, well, yeah, it was just 10 years of a million paper cuts in my marriage, but here's what ended up happening. Three years in divorce court. You know, it's like, well, that's what I reaped. You know, I sowed all these little things and little conversations and not valuing it. And then here's what I'm reaping for three. It all, it all hits you at once. A lot of times what ends up happening is you sow all these things in secret. And we all know these stories. There's lots of things sown in secret. And then all of a sudden you get caught or it gets revealed. And then you realize, wait a second, you've been lying for four years. And all four of those years hit at one time. That's what we call you end up reaping greater than you sowed. And so what he's saying here, and I want you to see this, is he's trying to encourage toward the end. Look at verse nine. And let us not grow weary of doing good. Because the two deceptions are either uh, the two ways we're deceived are, I'm doing bad things and it doesn't matter, or I'm doing good things and it doesn't matter. They're both deceptions. Here's what he says. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he's saying, don't give up in doing good. Let me encourage you in this. Let me just speak very personally, very pastorally to some of you. Right now, you are reaping things you sowed in an earlier season of your life, and you don't like it. 
You, I mean, and that's the concept. God, you know, God can forgive you of your sin. There can be consequences in this life for your sin still. And there's a lot of people who go, well, you know, I sowed, you know, 10 years of looking at porn and I sowed, you know, sowed five years of terrible relationships with my spouse and I sowed four years of, you know, not ignoring my kids and, you know, I sowed seven years of just chasing money. It's like, well, of course you're going to be reaping all these terrible things right now. You know, and we care and we're concerned and there might even be burdens that we can help you with with that. It's all connected here, but here's, here's, this is the encouragement. If you want to reap something different in your future, sow something different now. Isn't that powerful? That's the gospel. You can be forgiven, okay, of all the terrible things you've said in the past, but it's like, what would it look like right now for you to go, okay, look, I want to start sowing some things right now that I'm going to reap in the future. I'll tell you very personally, I'll be 36 this summer, which for some of you feels like you're old. Others of you feel like I'm very young, okay? I'm starting to feel old. I'm starting to look at the number 40 and I'm like, okay, it's four years away. And I'm beginning to ask myself, I've been asking myself, what, what do I want to continue to or start sowing right now? So that as I look to 40 and Lord willing, maybe 50 and 60 years old, what are the things that I want to reap in my family, in my marriage, in this church? Well, if I want to reap those things, then I need to begin to sow them now. Because listen, here's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is two things. Number one, Jesus Christ took your burdens. Jesus Christ joyfully and willfully took every burden. He said, I'll take the burden of being a human with all the suffering. I'll be raised by a single mom, lose my stepdad at a young age. I'll, wor I'll, I'll work a very, very difficult job. I'll be betrayed by close friends. I'll have my good friend Lazarus die. I'll go through all that burden of just being human and living in a broken and fallen world. And then guess what? I'll take the burden of the law and I'll walk uphill with it and I'll obey every section of it perfectly. And then I'll take the burden of the cross and the burden of your sin and the burden of the punishment of it all and I'll take that on me. And, and that's the first thing he does. And here's the second thing he does. He says, I will sow things for good that you'll get to reap later for good. Because here's the truth. So many of us, we get to either reap good things or bad things dependent on the people we're connected to. Isn't that the truth? Some of you have reps, reaped so many good things because of your mom and dad and some of you have reaped so many terrible things because of your mom and dad. And the powerful thing is Jesus Christ says, I will sow every good seed, obedience to the law, full obedience to God, dying and rising in for your sin. And I will let you, if you will put your faith and trust in me, if you repent of your sins and trust me, you'll be connected to me and you'll be able to, by faith, reap all of those things. That's the power of the gospel. And in response, here's what Jesus Christ says, carry your load, bear other burdens, and sow in every season. Let's pray to do that together. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm just, I'm just passionate about this. First and foremost in my own life, Lord. Lord, help us to be a church that if anybody is caught in sin, we confess it, we help them, we restore them, we want to be a place of restoration. Lord, help us be a church that deals rightly with sin and suffering of all sorts. Lord, help us to carry our own load, help us to bear each other's burdens, Lord. Help us to not give up in doing good. I know some people feel in the midst of COVID and everything else that's going on and quarantine and reopening and all of these questions and how we're in this new and next normal, there's people who just want to give up. Lord, I pray that we would continue to sow in this season that we might reap good things in the next. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.